welcome to episode 100 of the Conversations with Ross podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Jim Pittick. Jim is an actor and writer and is the co-creator of Family Tree, which you can purchase on DVD and digital download starting October 29th. You can give Jim a follow on Twitter at Real Jim Pittick. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. You're very welcome. Well, let's start at the beginning, Jim. Tell me what initially attracted you to acting and to filmmaking in the first place. Uh, I didn't really want to do a real job. I think it was the, the simple answer. Um, uh, I, I kind of liked the idea of, of not having to, uh, to work for a living. Um, uh, and of course, having made that decision, it's, I probably work harder than anybody else I know. Do you come from a theatrical or an acting family? What did your parents do for a living? I actually do a generation removed, and I didn't really know that until I was in my teens because there was sort of a lot of hidden family history. Um, and uh, in fact, episode two of Family Tree is, is, uh, bears some, some direct rela- uh, correlation to my own personal um, heritage. I mean, for everyone, for most people, except for the, uh, the kids that start acting when they're like six months old, acting starts off as just a recreation. How does it go from a recreation to something you think you can pursue as a career? Well, I, I, I really started at school and I was, I was probably 15 or 16. I was in a cast in a play. Um, the fact that I auditioned for it was a surprise to me. But, um, and the fact that I got the part was even more of a surprise. Um, and I and I remember waiting distinctly that first opening night in the in the wings, and feeling more terrified than I've ever felt in my life. But I had this also this gut strong feeling that I'd be doing this in one shape or another for the rest of my life, um, and uh, I couldn't explain why. Maybe an addiction to adrenaline or something. Um, but then I went to, I did the smart thing and went to university and got a degree in English literature and was acting the whole time while I was there and then went to drama school after that. So I did it sort of step by step. And then um, from the age of 22 onwards, I, I got my first job right out of drama school and been very, very fortunate that I've had a, a 35 year run, I think it is now. Do you feel like actors in the UK are trained differently than they are here in the States? Not if you've gone to Yale or uh, drama school or um, Juilliard or any of those. I think it's fairly similar. Um, Generally speaking, I would say that technique, the basic techniques of theatre are a given for English training. Um, So there's less sort of, uh, you know, methody stuff. But uh, no, I I, I don't, I think the traditional drama schools in in the States are probably very similar now to, to, to England. So how old were you when your career took you to Los Angeles? I was very young. I was 24. I was actually offered a job directing something in um, Northern California, which I did. And then I went to New York after that. I, was, I lived in New York for three years and doing uh, shows there. I got very lucky and very early and um, ended up doing, I think, three or four shows on Broadway back to back. So and then I moved to L.A. in the mid-'80s after I kind of decided I wanted to do more TV and film. What were your expectations of yourself and of what your career would be at that point? I talked to a lot of actors and I asked them if they, when they were first breaking in, suffered from delusions of grandeur. The idea that they would move out to LA and land a sitcom within six months. And then once that goes into syndication, they will segue right into features and win themselves some Oscars. Did you have those delusions as well? I didn't have delusions of grandeur. I have delusions of survival. Um, I, I kind of, I always felt, I mean, when I first started out, I honestly was quite happy to live the rest of my life 
with the same lifestyle as a student, very naively. Uh, and then, of course, once you start making a bit of money and having responsibilities and buying houses and having children, that changes very rapidly. Um, and then I actually very consciously steered my career away from the theatre towards a more lucrative arena and an arena, to be honest with you, which I felt more comfortable with. Uh, I love the theatre, but uh, I was never one of those people that has to be on stage. So um, I kind of ended up where I should be, and I and I also liked living in Los Angeles uh, right away. Um, and it was it, it feels like a right place for me to be to write and um, to act. Tell me about some of your collaborations with Christopher Guest, Family Tree being the most recent among them. How did you two initially come together? Well, we first met. Um, well, actually, I'd met him socially a few times. I knew Eugene Levy quite well. And um, and then it was Eugene's idea to team me up with Fred Willard for Best in Show. So I went in to meet Chris, uh, and we sort of talked for a short while. And uh, and then, really, that was it. And I, I left sort of and said, look, you know, uh, Chris didn't know my work, so I left him a, a tape and said, have a look. And if you think it's right, give me a call. And I think I got a call in the car. I was going home and he said, please, please be in it. So that was nice. Um, and I was actually directing, I'm not directing, I was writing and producing a TV show for the BBC uh, at the time. It was the first time I'd worked in England for many, many years. And I, I had to sort of take three days out of that uh, between the read-through of the, the sitcom and the, uh, the kind of last tech run. I had to fly to Vancouver, shoot Best in Show and then go back to London. So I was jet-lagged for the entire movie. Well, tell me about Best in Show. You also did A Mighty Wind. Tell me about those sets. There's no, the dialogue isn't scripted, but I guess the outline, there's an outline of what's supposed to happen. Tell me about how Christopher approaches that and how you interact with him on a set like that. Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a pretty detailed outline. And in fact, the, for Family Tree, we did uh, probably twice as much detail because we didn't know who we were going to end up with. And we wanted to leave less to chance, and we also knew we had less shooting time than we would on a movie. So, so yeah, it's, uh, the, some jokes are written in there, all the beats, the story, uh, all the characters. There's hugely detailed character outlines that every actor gets. Uh, and then on the day, they come in armed with as much artillery as possible, and so hopefully they're free to then fly with, with, uh, with the improv. And so, you know, if you hire the right people... Um, it works. Let's shift over to Family Tree a little bit. Family Tree is co-produced by HBO and BBC. How was that dealing with both networks? Uh, it was it was fine because NBC Universal International actually made the show, so the BBC and HBO were more the broadcasters. Uh, we we really had little interaction with either the BBC or HBO. We just made the show that we wanted to make, and Chris kind of wanted that, and was we were lucky enough to get that um so it was uh we flew under the radar a little bit it's such a great premise for a show the idea of this person he's left a a chest from his grandmother and he tries to go and piece together his family tree so often you see shows and they're premise based and you're like this is not sustainable but this could really last multiple seasons was that something that you and christopher thought of when you were initially creating it Absolutely. It's why we did it as a series rather than a film, because just by its nature, a tree has so many branches and roots. Um, and, and what we liked was also that uh, we could go in different directions and surprising directions. And I think that one of the things that we were able to achieve was 
was actually making a show that's not predictable. It's not, uh, people said they they honestly didn't know where it was going. And, and, and I think that's very important. And we, we work very hard on that and we, we would like to continue to do that. What would you have done differently in the first season, if anything? Uh, to be honest, Chris and I both feel we made the show we wanted to make. Um, I, I think episode one uh, is, uh, you know, was very much a setup episode. Uh, and, you know, in today's instance, uh, have everything now, uh, gratification um, society, you know, it's very difficult to have a first episode that requires you just to say, OK, we're, it's a slow introduction and here we are. Now follow us. You know, people want to dive in at the deep end. They want it. And so I think that that first episode, uh, I think, was is the one that, that always kind of made me a little nervous because people go, oh, you know, not much is happening. Um, but, I, I, you know, with Chris's stuff, that that's how it is. If you look at any of the films, not an awful lot happens in the first 45 minutes of the films. It's just introducing, meeting hanging out with the characters, and then it sort of kicks into a gear. Um, and, and that's what his work has always been about. It's a slow burn. It's not in your face. And it takes it takes time. And, and the, 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 the comedies are built for uh, endurance, not speed. And, and, and I think that that's why people remember the films and they can watch them, you know, multiple times. Tell me about the writing process on Family Tree. Did you and Christopher write it all at once before you shot, or did you sort of go have a few built up before you started writing? Did you have a traditional writing staff involved? No, not at all. We wrote all eight episodes uh, before we'd even officially sold the show. We literally just kept working because we believed in it, uh, and we let the business people get on with what they were doing. And by the time we actually closed the deal, we had uh, written all the episodes and um, had done all the work. So it was, it was it was quite a long process. I mean, it took us six months to write to write the eight episodes because you are starting from scratch with a with a new series. So you essentially wrote the show on spec. You wrote the show before you were commissioned by any network. Well, it wasn't so much on spec because we knew there were interested parties. And uh, we had a very good idea that we would sell it. But yes, we weren't paid anything until we'd actually finished writing the whole series. Tell me about casting Chris O'Dowd and how that came to be. Well, uh, he was on our radar very early on. Um, And uh, uh, when we first came to London to talk to the the BBC and other potential broadcasters, uh, the two Chris's met and, and... you know, Chris Guest knew right away. So this is the guy. I mean, the first person cast was actually Nina Conti. That she she knew. We knew right when we started uh, figuring out the show that we wanted to have um, Nina and Monk in the show. We wanted the idea of a family member with a, a puppet, uh, and the puppet being treated as a family member, but no one actually acknowledging it was was amusing to us. Jim, I want to mix things up a little bit. Tell me about your worst audition experience. <laughs> oh, God. My worst audition experience. Gosh. Uh, I've had so many, it's hard to sing one out. I do remember when I first went to L.A., they were looking for some some sort of late-night show. as It was an improv show. And I had actually, at that point, done almost no improv. And they said, just, you know, come and do something in character. 
And again, I didn't have any characters. I'm not one of those people. <laughs> and, and, and so a friend of mine said, well, you, you do a, a fairly amusing Indian accent, you know, East Indian. Um, and I started sort of just riffing in that, and it made him laugh. And in the same way that I worked with Chris, I mean, I the South African was literally because it was the least funny accent we could think of. And I made, it made him laugh that I would even attempt it. So, but this was, this was awful. It was, I just got to LA and I thought this would be great. And I went in and I had no idea. I didn't prepare anything. I stood up on stage and I just started talking and I put a red dot in the middle of my forehead too, which was <laughs> not only, not only just shockingly racist and inappropriate, it was, I didn't, I didn't, you know, brown my face up or anything. It was so staggeringly awful. And I think, I, I can't imagine I said one thing that was remotely funny or interesting. Uh, and there was a stony reception. And I, I, my confidence drained visibly the more I did it. Uh, and I, I literally slunk out of that theater. I almost ran home. It was just awful. What do you do when you're in a situation like that, when you know you're bombing? Do you just keep going until they tell you to stop? I'm not a stand-up, so I've never really... I've always been terrified of that whole idea. I mean, in a, when you're playing a, on a play or a scripted, whatever it is, you have that to cling on to. And you just cling on to it for dear life, and you just plow through to the end. Um, you, you, And then you say, who wrote this shit at the end when you come off stage? Um, but, but when it's just you coming up with stuff that you can't hide, um, I mean, I have, the one thing I have done is, uh, in certain scripted plays and comedies, I have actually delivered a joke that, you know, written joke or whatever. If it didn't get a laugh, I would do it again. And then sometimes several times until I forced someone to laugh. It's sort of comedy by submission. Um, but, but that's very rare that I ever did that. You're also a writer. You have uh, a screenplay credit and a story credit on The Man with Eugene Levy and Samuel Jackson, and you have a story credit on Tooth Fairy. You also wrote for several episodes of television. Tell me about your writing process and, the, and where the interest in screenwriting came from. Well, I always wanted to write uh, because I didn't feel like acting was enough for me, intellectually stimulating enough just on its own. So I always played with it, and um, it, it, the, the right form for me is, is film or television. Uh, I'm not a playwright, and I'm not a novelist. Um, I probably could write a play if I really put my mind to it, but it's not where I naturally uh, am drawn to. So I started just writing and writing and writing until I sold something, and, um, and then I had a kind of another career. My process is pretty intense. I tend to start early, and I work till I run out of steam, and... Sometimes that's four hours, and sometimes it's um, 12 hours. What mistakes do you see young writers make most often, both on the page and off? God, I make enough mistakes of my own to start criticizing other people. I don't know. Uh, I would say that the, the looking at what I see, and I'm, I, I feel is kind of lacking in a lot of things, is people actually get formulaic, and I think that they write... Uh, based on their experiences of watching TV and film as opposed to life. Um, and I think people write with a kind of commercial kind of 
I thinking this is what will sell or this is what people want. And, and it's it's so refreshing when you see a voice that is different and unique and not uh, predictable. It's tough, though, because does the industry embrace different? No. I mean, every, you know, it's, just, it's almost a cliche, but everywhere you go, they want, they say they want something new and different. Um, and... But, but recognizable at the same time. So, you know, there, there really isn't. If you can find a new twist on an old tale, that's probably your best bet. Um, but, but no, difference is not embraced it's because it's not a risk business. It's, it's a, uh, well, it is a risk. So creatively, you know, writing is a risk business, but um, as, a, as a, a financial person or someone who's actually having to Look at it from a business point of view. Um, they they want the tried and true, and uh, that's sadly often at odds with creativity. You mentioned that you feel like you still make mistakes when you're writing. What mistakes do you see in yourself most often? Oh, cliches. You know, you you just without even realizing it, you 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 sort of write cliches, or you have absorbed something someone else has said or a joke or something that, that you haven't even realized you've absorbed subconsciously and, and that you kind of recycle it and you look at it in the cold light of day and you go, oh, yeah, that's just highly unoriginal. So uh, I'm always on the lookout for that. Um, uh, and if, if you're working too fast, you can make shortcuts that, that, that have the same result. So I think it's, it's it's a hit and miss, you know, tapping into your creativity is hit and miss. Sometimes you, you, you really do find a, a voice inside that's that's new and fresh and other times it isn't. And, and you have to be, that's where rewriting comes in and you have to be kind of very ruthless with your own material. Your earliest credit on IMDb dates back to 1985. How have you seen the industry change since then? It's become more corporate, uh, that's for sure. Um, I am very excited with the sort of breakup of traditional television um, formats. I love the idea of binge viewing. I always have. Back uh, before I even got into uh, TV or film, I, I used to watch, you know, videos in those days of, 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 of miniseries and things all in one go. I like that idea, and I think people really do want to watch things when they want to watch it now, um, and they can watch it in any uh, platform they like. And, and I think there's so many different new people making television. So it is, it's not the Wild West, but it's, it's, um, it's a different type of gold rush. And I think that's good. I think it had got so horribly uh, predictable, um, the networks especially. And then even the cable companies started to get predictable. Uh, and I think this is Netflix and places like that have really revolutionized the whole industry. Um, and in a positive way, I think in the music business, it was destructive, the, the, the kind of breakup of the system uh, for artists. And I think that this isn't. I think it's it's very exciting. I, I'm very thrilled to to know that things can be done in different ways and things have another life. You know, shows get picked up by somebody if they've been dropped by somebody else and uh, all bets are off. And I like that. It's interesting, Mitchell Hurwitz, I was at the New York Television Festival uh, on Monday, and Mitchell Hurwitz, who created Arrested Development, was there, and he was talking about, he initially thought when he came up with season four of Arrested Development that they were going to 
do one episode at a time once a week like a traditional sitcom and when the yeah. people at netflix told him they were going to it's going to be all available at once not only does that change the way consumers watch a show but he was saying how it changed the way he wrote the show that different jokes fly when you're watching six episodes in a row there's different things you can get in there and it's a different writing process and i thought that was really interesting it's not only changing things for consumers it's changing things for the creators as well Yes, well, you, you don't get that that old rule that every episode has to be um, self-contained and, and people uh, can, can come in and, um, you know, pick up the show and you know, so everything's wrapped up in that one episode. You can have arcs now throughout a season. You can tell stories the way stories are supposed to be told um, without, you know, just having it all in one single episode and then never watch it again. And I think that's good. I think it hooks people in, uh, and, and and if it's available there and then, you people will watch the next episode. Uh, there were only a few shows before that did that. You know, there was Lost, there was Twenty Four, there was you know a few that had ongoing storylines that kept. But that was a big commitment, and it was a big risk to ask people to come back every week and do that. Uh, of course, they would DVR it and that. But now it's the idea of being able to watch it if you want to in one day or, uh, you know, in the course of a week, the whole thing. It's great. It's more like going back to the way we used to have stories, and that's through reading books. Um, no one said you have to stop at page, you know, at chapter four, and then you have to read chapter five next week. You know what I mean? You've been fortunate enough to be a working actor for over 30 years. You've obviously made some great movies. You've made some movies that people haven't seen. You've made some movies that people have seen. I'm always curious about the process of when you've made a bad movie. Every actor has at some point been in a bad movie. At what point do you know you're in a bad movie? Uh, you don't often know until it's it's done. And because, you know, uh, the experience can be great. You can be having a fantastic time. I mean, there are certain scripts, you know, this is not high-end material. And this is unlikely to turn out, you know, as high-end material. But, but by and large, you know, you honestly don't know until um, until it's out there. Uh, and and, and I, as I get older, I, I enjoy the process of making film or TV uh, as much, if not more, than the actual watching the final product. I mean, for certainly movies, I, I actually don't watch a lot of movies I'm in because I don't want to be disappointed. Because you don't want to be disappointed. Do you feel like that? Yeah, if, not- I had a, if, if, I, if I had a good experience making it, I don't want to to risk seeing that and have it, you know, that that shattered. I mean, listen, it's not a golden rule. I I do watch some stuff I'm in, but 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 I've become less. If I have doubts about it, uh, I, I I just assume not ruin the memory of, of of making it. What were some of the obstacles that you've encountered along the way that you didn't necessarily anticipate when you were first breaking in? Well, I think you know, finding steady work for anybody in the, in this field is is an obstacle, but that's that was one I expected. Um, I, I don't know if there were any unexpected obstacles. Um, I, I, I can't think of any that, that, you know, offhand. You've wanted to be a working actor since you were a teenager and you did your first play and you became a working actor. You've been working regularly for quite some time. Is being a working actor what you expected it to be? Yeah, that's really what, what I set out to do is just to, to work and to make a living and, and to, for it to be my life. And I like to be busy. I don't like to sit around. So that was always the goal. Um, and, and I think Rod Steiger once, I think it was Rod Steiger said, you know, the definition of success 
in show business is survival. And um, uh, and it's really true. I mean, I, I think that to, to uh, get to the end of your career or life and say, I did this for 50 years or whatever, is and I got paid and got paid well to do it or not, but I did it and I didn't have to do anything else. If that was what you chose as your life and you were able to do it, I think it's a fantastic achievement. You know, I think uh, people get so caught up in fame and, you know, what other people's definitions of what success is and what uh, what it's supposed to be. Would you change anything about your career in hindsight if you could? No, I, I wouldn't in my life either. I, 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 I know people say it's... I think Woody Allen, I read once, recently read, he said, you know, people are lying if they say they had no regrets. I, I, I don't, I don't actually agree with that. I, 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 he may have tons of regrets. I, I don't because it's all part of your journey. So, uh, you know, it's the mistakes are what you learn from as, as much as anything else. Uh, other things I'd still like to do. Yes. Other things I wish might have happened that didn't. Yes. But they're not regrets that I don't, they're just sort of aspirations as yet un, unfulfilled. And that's, to me, healthy. That keeps you going. For young actors or young writers who are looking to break into the industry now, what advice would you give them? Just do it. I mean, first of all, for actors, get training. You know, do theater. Get, get on stage. Uh, do that. Because everybody who has had, uh, that I know, has had a, a long career, um, has has had got that background. Uh, I mean, television is fly by night I, you could get lucky and just go straight into television stay in television and film for the rest of your life but it doesn't happen that often um, you'd have to really hit the jackpot uh, most people that, that have lifelong careers doing it have have gone have the foundation of training You've been listening to Jim Piddick. Jim is an actor and writer and the co-creator of Family Tree, which you can purchase on DVD and digital download starting October 29th. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. You're very welcome. Thank you. All right. That was Jim Piddick from Family Tree, and this was episode 100 of the Conversations with Ross podcast. Thanks so much for listening, for hanging in for 100 episodes. I've had fun doing them. I hope you've enjoyed listening. I know some of you have listened to most every episode, so thank you for doing that. I want to thank a few people who've really helped out with the podcast, my friends. Zach Milliken is a graphic designer and a web designer. He really helped me get the website up and running and handle some of the technical aspects of the site when it first launched. If you're interested in graphic design or in web design, Zach's a good person to follow on Twitter. You can give him a follow at ZachDM. also want to thank my friend Tom Rakowskis. Tom helped me get some of the podcasts up and promote some of the podcasts on Wikipedia. He put some links some of there and some on Reddit. So thanks to Tom for doing that. You can give him a follow on Twitter at The Mass Hacker. Two bands who have let me use their music through the entire run. Baker, whose song Reputation I use as the opening theme and Scamper, whose song Barcelona I use as the closing theme. Thank you so much to both of them. You can find out more information about both of those bands on MySpace Music. And thanks to all the publicists and managers that helped make this possible. There's far too many to name individually, but there's been a lot of people that have helped make this podcast possible, so thank you to all of them for doing that. Thank you for listening. I'm not going to stop doing the podcast because I've hit 100. I enjoy doing them. I don't post them as regularly as I once used to, but I still enjoy doing them when I do. So thank you for listening and look forward to doing many more. I'll have a new episode up soon.